really glad uh, Jeff made the connection between myself and my Uncle Ed, because it means if I say anything that's wrong, it's clearly a genetic problem, and it's <laughs> his fault, not mine. Does anybody here struggle with often feeling behind in life? Anybody feel like maybe over the last four or five months, the, the routine that you had has been taken away? Maybe you went into this period thinking you're going to get more done, but you, find, you found that the little things that were getting done are no longer happening? We don't do well as human beings without routine. Now, one of the things I've noticed for years uh, when I was pastoring a church now working with men is that often when you're discipling somebody, the difficulty is you only have access to a small part of their life. So that even if you're getting them to do something good like have a quiet time, there's this 90% of their life that it's difficult to reach, but if that doesn't change, the good things don't really have a transformative effect. I mean, an example right now, if you start your day in God's Word, that's wonderful, but if you end your day watching two and a half hours of the news, you're probably convinced that there's not a God in the world's outside of anyone's control. So this is a moment where I think what we need, and I'm speaking to men in particular, yes, we need those spiritual routines. We also need a disciplined lifestyle. We need to break some of the bad habits that keep the good habits from bearing the fruit they could have in our life. I want to invite the men here to participate in a 12-week program. CT12 is what it's called. This is a 12-week program that's really meant to help guys in three areas. Establish simple spiritual routines, regain some bodily discipline in their life, and to work together with other men toward a common goal and to get the motivation that comes from that. Now, if you're interested in this, if you go to the website, menneedhelp.org. That's not hard to remember, right? Men need help. I'm sure wives can nod and they can remind their husbands of that fact and of the website, menneedhelp.org. You'll find the program. I would encourage you to take some time this week. I'm uh, forming groups in Covington. There's some in the evening. There's some in the morning. There's some over Zoom. But if you look at this program and think, I need this, I might actually need someone to help me get up early, early enough to have a quiet time. I might need someone to actually help me, you know, cap a threshold so I'm not consuming too much television or that video games aren't crowding out the space I have for prayer. I need something a little bit different, a little bit more, some training wheels so I can regain some balance and actually get moving in the long road of maturity in Christ. If you hear them think, you know, that sounds interesting, I would encourage you to look at the website. And again, we're going to be forming groups, and there will be men in this community going through this in just a few weeks. And so I think it's something in general that men need, but specifically in this bizarre moment, where so many of our routines are still not in place, this could be something that could get you moving and regain that sense of focus, clarity, and momentum, not by yourself, but in community with other men that want to be more like Jesus. So if you have more, uh, want more information, menneedhelp.org, and uh, you can meet with me. I'd love to talk to you more, and I'd love to put you with a group of men to go through this together. Now let's move to God's Word. Let's open our Bibles. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is page uh, 957 in the church Bible. And we're going to read through this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting verse 1. 
give you just a moment to find that. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? It is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sakes? It was written for our sakes because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. The weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in his blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Thus having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Spirit of God, we acknowledge that we can no more see the truth of your word 
than we could see light without our eyes. Uh, we are absolutely dependent upon you. And so we pray that you would awaken our hearts, uh, that you would give us not just the ability to see, but the ability to love what we see. And that this word would come to us with all of its power, all of the creative power of God, so that we would not just be hearers, but become doers. Not merely doers, but our whole persons would be changed more into the image of the one who created us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading a few months ago a brand new uh, biography on Eric Little. Maybe know Eric Little from Chariots of Fire. And this book is written by a historian of Scottish sports. And so I was interested to see how much of the movie Chariots of Fire was actually true. You can never assume anything with a movie. And I was pleased to find out that I think my favorite scene in the movie actually happened. It's the one where Eric Little, he's in a race, and uh, back in those days, you didn't have lanes, and so as soon as the race began, everybody collapsed in on each other. And Eric Little, he gets tripped up, and you may remember he falls to the ground, and there's that moment that you wonder if he's going to get up, and then, you know, he gets back up, and he starts running, and at first you're thinking, okay, he's probably just going to try to finish the race, but all of a sudden, he begins to pass people. All of a sudden, he wins the race, and I was reading about this, and it was interesting because the writer was saying that this was not a race that was against sort of amateur athletes. It wasn't your local hometown race with a bunch of dads. They were serious athletes. You know, you think of something like that, and you think if someone asked you, can you run like Eric Little? You'd say, no way. Right? I'm knocking on 40. And it wouldn't matter how hard I trained how well I ate, what I did, there's not a chance in the world I would be able to run as fast as Eric Little. Probably never could. You know, it's easy to have that same mentality when you read about someone like the Apostle Paul. You look at him and think, you know, he's an apostle. You know, he saw the resurrected Lord Jesus in a special moment. He knew the power of the Spirit in his life. There's no way that I could ever live a life like the Apostle Paul. And as soon as we would happily sit down in our couches and just lounge in despair, in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me. And tells us not to sit content in the mud, but to get back on the track and keep running. And so here's the question. Here's a big question I want us to think about. How do you keep pace with an apostle? Now, here's the first thing I want to say. If you want to keep pace with an apostle, you need a definite sense of calling. When you look at the life of Paul, you see that his whole spirituality was fueled by a weight of responsibility. He knew what God had asked him to do. We see it throughout this chapter. If you look at verse 1, he says, am I not an apostle? It's not a question, right? He knows he's an apostle. Look at verse 12. What does he say? Do we not have a right to share? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He knows his whole life is in service to the gospel. At verse 17, he's talking about preaching. If I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am entrusted with a stewardship. There is a weighty sense of obligation 
that Paul carried with him that compelled him forward. Some of you probably saw that amazing movie, 1917. That movie about World War I, at the very beginning you have these two young soldiers and they're given a task no one would ask for. They have to deliver a message to an officer in the English army. If they don't get there, thousands of their comrades are going to die. To get there, they've got to cross through enemy territory. In the whole movie, you can see on their faces, they're exhausted. They're tired. At times, they're afraid. But they can't not do it because of the importance of the calling that they've been given. Now, the amazing thing about being a Christian is that all of you have the capacity to live with as definite a sense of calling as Paul himself had. This is one of those truths. I mean, there were several truths during the Reformation that just shook Western civilization. The biggest was justification by faith alone. But right in there, there was another tremor. And it was this idea of calling. If you go back to chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, there are some verses that rattled all of Western Europe. Look at uh, verse 17. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned or called him to, to which the Lord has called him. Look at verse 20. Each one of you should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant or a slave when you were called? What guys like Martin Luther grabbed hold of was this meant that if you were called into your Christian life, And if you were a maid, if you swept the streets, if you were a janitor, if you were a teacher, if you were a lawyer, it didn't matter. God didn't just call you into the kingdom of light. Yes, he did that. But he also called you into concrete circumstances wherein you would serve him. So that like in Colossians, Paul was able to say the unthinkable. He was able to look with a serious face at slaves and say, everything you do, don't do it with eye services, men pleasers but unto the Lord, for you serve the Lord Christ. So when you're cleaning up your master's bathroom, you're doing it for Jesus in his name. That shook people. In that truth, the problem is the devil doesn't like it, so he continues to find ways to distort it. And there's three different ways, really, this truth has been distorted over time. The first, we might call the medieval distortion. If you go back to the medieval kind of Christianity, what you found is people said the only people that had spiritual callings were those that went into special orders, that became nuns and priests and monks. They have a calling, but if you don't have one of their jobs, you don't have a calling. Don't think that this doesn't slide into evangelical churches. A lot of people think Jeff's got a calling, I have a calling, pray for us in our calling. Now, that's the medieval distortion, but then there's another one. There's a modern distortion. This one is so close to the truth without actually being the truth. This is what it says. Every life is a calling. Are you an accountant? Are you a teacher? Are you a mom? Are you a dad? It's a calling. Now, here's the problem. It's only a calling if you make it into a calling. 
Just because you're an accountant does not mean that you're serving God in your accountancy practice. You have to have an intentionality. You have to move into that with prayer. You've got to take it up and put it before God. He'll make it into a calling, but it's not automatic. And so there are a lot of people who are living their lives as if it's secular when God could make it sacred. There's another one. We call this the uh, millennial distortion. And this is the one where you kind of feel like you have a calling, but it's tucked way back in the back closet of your life. And it's like the holy grail that you spend your whole life searching for, hearing about, but you never discover. I know a lot of people in their 60s who are still looking for their calling. Now, because that's such a common question, let's just jump in. How do you actually discern your calling then? Here's the process I would lead you through. Start with the generic. Sometimes I have men, they come to me, and they want to talk about the topic of calling. What's my calling? First thing I say to them is, have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? Have you ever read the book of Colossians? Have you ever read 1 Corinthians chapter 13? When you master Paul's description of love then you can feel like you need more in your life. I can remember several years ago with my wife Anna, I thought I was going to do an old Benjamin Franklin. Remember Benjamin Franklin, the way he did the virtues is he lists them off and each week he'd practice one, master it, and move on. I thought, I'm going to do this. Now Paul says, love is patient, love is kind. About 10 years have elapsed and I'm still not mastered. Those. I'm not patient, I'm not kind. When you look at the Christian life, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, if God gave you a thousand years, you would never say, you know what, I'm done. You got anything else for me? It's such a rich, it's such a deep life. We can spend our life simply pursuing Jesus. John Stott, the great churchman, he was in an interview once. The journalist said, you've had a brilliant academic career. First at Cambridge, rector at 29, chaplain to the queen. What's your ambition now? To be more like Jesus. Start with the generic. Now what you do is, after you start with the generic, then you begin to think about the specific details of your life. You know, not all of us actually have the same life. Some of us are married, some of us are not. Some of us have children, some of us don't. Some of us have grandchildren. Some of us, again, work at schools. You know, some of us work for the government. We all have different jobs. You know, God has placed us in Covington or Mandeville or Abita. And what we need to do is look at these concrete circumstances and realize none of this is accidental. Now what I do is I take this picture of walking with Jesus and I figure how do you coordinate it with the concrete details of your life? One of the first writers on vocation, an old Puritan named uh, William Perkins, this is what he said. If you would lead a life unblameable before God and man, you must first think of yourself, what is my particular calling, and then practice Christianity in that very calling. What's it mean to be a dad and follow Jesus? What's it mean to be a grandmother? and follow Jesus. What does it mean to be single? Or to be a widow and follow Jesus? That's, we make it specific and concrete. And then when you've gone from generic to specific, then you can think about the special. 
This is where we like to begin, right? God may call you to leave the circumstances of your life. He's done that with this church, right? The Johnson family. There are people that have moved on. But that's not where we begin. Begin by focusing on the generic. Work it out in the specific. And then if God begins to unsettle you and give you a vision, give you courage and vision for what other people don't see or are unwilling to do, then he may move you. But let that percolate over time. Don't start there. Now, I can't impress upon you enough the difference it will make if you know and feel and own your life as a calling. It will give clarity to you. It will give compulsion. It will press you forward. Look at what Paul says again in verse 17. For if I do this, he says, of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm entrusted with a stewardship. One of the most powerful forms of motivation is when you can't not do something. Everybody, if you look at the dishes beside your sink, there's always some threshold, right? For some, it's a single teacup. Somebody else runs out of dishes. There's not another one in the cupboard, right? But there's some point where you can't not do it, and it gets done. And what happens with a sense of calling is it becomes that thing that you can't not do. Spurgeon, the great preacher, he said, excel in one power which is both mental and moral, namely the power of concentrating all your focus upon the work to which you are called. Collect all your thoughts, rally all your faculties, mass all your energies, focus your capacities, turn all the springs of your soul into one channel, causing it to flow in an undivided stream. Christ can do that for you. Just give you one example of what this can look like. One of the most powerful revivals in living history was on the west coast of Scotland in the Hebridean Islands. Still old people that have memories of this. You can visit them in their 90s. Now most of the stories of the Hebridean revival go back to two old ladies, Peggy and Christine uh, Smith. That's right. One of them was blind. One of them was bent over. Both of them in their mid-80s. They could only do one thing. They could pray. So they prayed to the villages, they prayed to the families, they prayed to the individuals. And God mightily used them fulfilling their calling to bring a spectacular revival in a broader area. That's what can happen when we have a definite sense of calling. If you want to keep pace with the apostle, you need a definite sense of calling. But you need something else. You also need an eternal perspective. The gift of faith is the gift of being woken up. Truth has not changed. We've just never seen it. And so what happens when you come to faith is all of a sudden you can see things that before were invisible. And one of the things that you can see is that there is this horizon of eternity. That time is a very tiny circle. And so you can begin to live not for just the temporary moment, but for the stretches and the frontiers of age upon age. That's how Paul lived. And if you look at Paul, you can see the effects that an eternal perspective have. One of them is they enable us to recalculate worth. Look at uh, chapter 9. Look at how readily Paul uses this image of a wreath, of a trophy, 
The second largest set of games in the Hellenistic world were just outside Corinth. They love their athletics like we love our LSU football. And he looked over and said, you see those athletes? They train so hard for a perishable wreath, we're after an imperishable one. In the moment that you realize that that's on the table, all of a sudden the perishable loses its luster. That's why John Wesley, he said, I value all things according to the price it will gain in eternity. That's how we need to think. And the power for Paul of this eternal perspective is that it enabled him to maintain his spiritual drive. Paul suffered from a kind of FOMO, a kind of fear of missing out. It's not the kind of fear of missing out that we have when all of a sudden there's a concert in New Orleans that we're going to miss and we wish we were there. Rather, if you read through Paul, Paul recognizes he never is worried. He never says anything. You cannot lose your salvation. He also talks about the capacity to waste one's life, to live before the wrong audience. In chapter 3, In the same letter, he talks about some people's works will amount to wood, hay, and stubbling that will just vanish. Other works will be like gold, silver, and precious objects, which will somehow contribute to what God is doing. Paul's not after the straw. In a real sense, he's running for gold. This is why, look at what Paul says in chapter 4. It's amazing. Look at his notion of audience. He says, look, with me it's a very small thing, verse 3, if I am judged by you or a human court, I don't even judge myself. He knew there was only one set of eyes that mattered. That was the Lord Jesus. And that's what he lived for. And this is what we see again in chapter 9 when Paul says, I discipline my body, I bring it into subjection. If having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul was so caught up with eternity. This is why at the end of his life, writing to Timothy, he could say, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. There is now what? A crown of righteousness, which the Lord himself will give me. This is what happens. We have to see that we can waste our lives. Why Bunyan? Bunyan encouraged, he said, would you be faithful to do the work that God has appointed you to do while in this world? Listen to John Bunyan, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. This is his advice. Believe then that whatever good thing you do for him, if done according to his word, it is not only accepted by him now, but recorded to be remembered for you against the time to come. Yes, it's laid up as treasure in chests and coffers to be brought out and rewarded before both men and angels to your your eternal comfort. This is the mindset that what we do now can have eternal significance that propels us to not waste but use our life. I'll give you one other thing that an eternal perspective can do. It will enable you to be content with your life, to stay in your lane, to not feel like you should be Amy Carmichael, you should be Hudson Taylor. If you were just George Mueller, then you'd be the real Christian. Again, Paul, what did he say? He said, look, I don't care if you judge me. It's the Lord Christ. He's the judge. 
This old rabbi who said, Rabbi Zussi, said, in the coming world, they will not ask me, why were you not Moses? They will say, why were you not Zussia? God's made you who he wants you to be. And you don't have a clue. One of the wonderful marvels, the points of joy where all just our jaws are going to drop the ground is in eternity when we found out that the real heroes of the faith were the people living in cottages in obscure places who no one ever wrote about, that they were the ones that most powerfully knew the Lord Jesus. Who cares what even Christian publishers choose to print? You live your life before Jesus. Believing like Jesus says, nothing's done in secret. You don't have to do it before men because your Father in heaven, he sees, and he'll reward you openly in his timing. You want to keep pace with the apostle. You need a definite sense of calling. You need an eternal perspective. But there's one other thing we see in this chapter of 1 Corinthians. You need self-control. A lot of us are uncomfortable with self-control. Deep down, we think it is a pagan virtue. We think it's just effort. Don't forget, it's fruit of the Spirit, right? That this is a strength the Lord supplies. And the reason self-control is so vital is there are really two dangers. If you see your calling, if you feel the weight, if you set out to run that direction, on the one side, there will be active temptation. The devil will be trying to lure you away from that direction. One of his favorite tactics is actually just passive drift. You don't even realize it's going on. As Paul says, you just conform to the world around you. Everybody watches TV three hours a night. What else is there to do, right? It may not be evil, but maybe there's just something more that could be done. Maybe there actually was a prayer meeting that I missed out, not because I had an excuse, but because I just didn't want to be there. And I could have been there. I could have tasted the presence of God. I could have communed with his people. I could have been re-energized, and I missed it because I'm just coasting through life right now. Now look at the example that Paul gives us. He looks to the athletes. Do not all those who run in a race run, but one wins the prize. Run in such a way to obtain it. Can you say that you're running for the prize? He says they exercise self-control in all things. That's what is Drew Brees doing right now? What is Joe Burrows doing right now? What is LeBron James doing right now? Do they ever come off? Do they tap out? They see that for excellence to take root and be sustained. It takes focus. It takes self-control. And Paul is willing to look to those examples and say they don't model it. That's our virtue. That's what the Spirit enables. That's what the Spirit wants in our life. And Paul, he actually uses himself as an example. Look at verse 26. I do not run aimlessly. A lot of us feel like we've lost our sense of direction. He says, I don't beat the air. A lot of us, we don't know what we're doing. We're just going through the motions of life. He says, I discipline my body. I bring it under control. And friends, this is part of our calling. That God would have us engage all of our faculties on this work of knowing Jesus, walking with Jesus. It doesn't happen accidentally. 
It doesn't happen haphazardly. For Paul, notice how all of his body, all of his mind is engaged. His imagination is at work. He imagines the prize that God will give him. How often does he talk about the reward, the crown of righteousness that the Lord will give him? How often is Paul reminding us of the perspective? Don't think this life is a playground. Don't think that it's a fair. The goal is not just success or fulfillment or fun. It's the wilderness. It's a race. Don't be surprised if it's difficult. This is what we've been called into. It's cross-bearing right now. But cross-bearing that leads to glory. How often is Paul saying you need your memory engaged? You've got to remember what has God done? Christ has died for our sins. Christ has been risen. Our life is hid with him. When he appears, we will be like him. We have to have this not on the back of our mind, on the front of our mind. How often is Paul saying your attention? You can't let yourself be distracted. It's not the spare change. It's not the pennies you can just throw away. No, your attention directs your affection. And so whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is virtuous, set your mind on these things. And the will has got to be engaged. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards a long time ago, what he said. He's famous for his resolutions. Listen to this resolution resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yes, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. He was all in. We need to be all in. Now, I would guess that having heard this, some of you feel a little bit like Eric Little when he tripped over his feet or somebody else's and found himself on the ground, right? You're thinking, all of this sounds great, but I don't have the strength to get back on the track and start running. This isn't in me. You know the other great lesson that Paul knew? Is grace is sufficient. God's strength is made perfect in weakness. That when I am weak, then I am strong. To the extent that Paul would say, I boast in my infirmities. Why? That the power of Christ might rest upon me. Remember what Isaiah said so long ago? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he neither grows faint nor weary. Right? He's the one who gives strength to the weak. He gives power to those who have no might. The young man, they will stumble and fall. The youth, you know, they're grow weary, but those who wait on the Lord, they will renew their strength. They will mount up with, like, with wings like eagles. That's the strength that can come to us. And so, friends, if you're feeling in the dirt, look up. Look up. And ask for Jesus to give you a desire that's not latent within your heart to give you a will that is firmer than anything you could muster on your own, to give you such a vision of glory that you can't not strive with heart, mind, soul, and strength to move toward it. And that's what he's been doing for generations. And that's what he did for Paul, right? 
who was exerting himself the wrong direction, and he turned them and brought him to himself. And so, friends, this is an opportunity. It's not just an opportunity over 12 weeks for men to get on some sort of track that might spur spiritual growth, but every Sunday is an opportunity for God to do a fresh work of renewal and revival in our hearts. And so let's pray together. Let's ask the Lord to give us a vision of the calling he has and the strength to run after it hard. Father, we pray that uh, the word this morning would come with comfort, that it would come with strength, and that it would come with power. Uh, We recognize that all of us feel feeble, especially over these last several months. These have not been months for most of us that have been well invested. But we rejoice to know that the Sermon on the Mount, it didn't begin with uh, effort. It began with those who are poor in spirit. And so we pray that as you have said, you don't just dwell in the high and holy place. You dwell with those who have a broken spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the spirit of the contrite heart. And so, Lord, we just pray that there's anyone trembling at your word this morning, they would find your strength moving into their hearts and that you would bring that transforming power that we could have that definite sense of calling that we could have that eternal perspective and that we could have uh, all of the strength, the friendship, and the support required to grow together into the likeness of Jesus. We pray this all in his glorious name.